the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We apologize for the very quick technical difficulties, but our crack crew has got them taken care of. Thank you for tuning in today. This is the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we do here every day is take your phone calls and answer Bible questions, questions about what's what we believe as Christians and why, questions that are troubling, things that you might be dealing with in life. We'll do the best that we can to answer your questions. You need only to call area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call 877-630-630. KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, we want to keep you safe. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday, my schedule after the surgery and everything, I'm back on schedule. So tonight we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, If you are a dad, or I would even extend that to single moms, this is a very important study. It's a tough one, but it's a very important study to... Uh, to hear, so uh, you can listen at calvarysa.com or you can join us on Wednesday night. We've always got some room in the sanctuary, so uh, you can join us. It is a study that's pretty important. Also, because it's Wednesday, that means tomorrow is Thursday, and Paula will be live in studio with me on the program tomorrow. Ladies, it's a day that we set aside especially for you, so if you have any questions or anything Paula can encourage you with or help you with, you can call tomorrow. We'd love to hear from you. Let's take our first phone call on line one from San Antonio. Cindy on line one. Thanks for calling, Cindy. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. 
The um, the other day uh, we were talking about the legalization of marijuana, and I didn't get my call in um, in time. It, 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 the time got away from me. But I think that legalizing it was probably one of the worst things that politicians could have uh, conned us into doing because now all these young kids are going to be getting pot from their older brothers and sisters. But um, And I think that's just going to be a big accident. That I think that's going to be horrible. But my question gets down to the point of the medicinal part of it. I think that's where they, they uh, you know, talk us into having it legalized because of the medicinal purposes of when people have cancer. And I guess the chemotherapy makes them sick and then the pot makes them feel better or if it helps relieve the pain. So now I'm in kind of a quandary about whether it was good to legalize it because of the medicinal purposes. So I'll get off the air and let you um, let you talk about this. Thank you, Cindy. You know, Cindy, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. This is not only one of the worst things. Imagine people who grew up in my generation to to imagine that that we would ever have the the, the state's approval or even our parents' approval to smoke marijuana uh, was unthinkable. I mean, we we knew that, that what the drug was for. We knew the damage that it caused, and yet um, now we live in a time where things are turned completely uh, upside down. And we have people making arguments about whether or not, well, because it's legal, now I can I can use it. Make no mistake, the minute you start smoking marijuana, you get high. And when you do that, as a Christian, you're outside of the will of God. Now, one thing for the, 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 the marijuana for cancer patients that you were speaking about, uh, I understand that it helps with nausea. Uh, I've been asked if it's okay. Uh, doctors have very effective anti-nausea drugs that will do the same thing that marijuana does. And this is just one of those things that we ought to stay away from. Uh, the only time, and I'm just going to share this with the audience, and if you think I'm a horrible person for it, then I'm a horrible person. But the only time I've ever given somebody um, my blessing, although they don't need my blessing, but I think you understand what I mean. Uh, we had a woman here who was dying of cancer, and she was uh, uh, only with uh, maybe a day or two left to live. And she was racked with incessant itching. And um, her husband told me that she... Well, she couldn't stop itching. Uh, she, she just tried marijuana, and it took the itching away. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, you know, I think Jesus is going to be okay with this. Uh, and she was with the Lord, in, literally, in just a couple of days. So this just isn't something that we ought to consider doing. It's something that we ought never to, to, to give our blessing to. And for the life of me, Cindy, for the life of me, I can't understand why this is even a question in the Christian community. So these are the kinds of things that um, that we're faced with in the world that we live in these days. Sad, but it's the way it is. 340-9585. You know, Cindy, one of the things you ju- you said was uh, uh, younger kids will be getting it from their older, older siblings. Uh, you know, we live in a time now where the older siblings are getting the Ritalin and the Adderall from their younger siblings uh, who are diagnosed with ADHD. So I guess that's just full circle. We are absolutely insane with our approach to drugs and alcohol. Uh, and to see so many Christians getting swept up in these arguments is absolutely heartbreaking. I can't even imagine the pain that it causes Jesus. Here is a, an anonymous question from our email inbox, and this is one that breaks my heart. Uh, it's a little wordy, so I'm going to, uh, but I'm going to take time. I think it's important. Pastor Ron, I received this from my cousin, whom I'm close to, and it breaks my heart. I don't know what to say or do. Here's part of the letter that she sent me. I am gay and I don't go to church anymore because I don't like the idea of people telling me what I should do and how I should be doing it. I think many millennials feel the same way. I realize that what it means to be gay is really my own business. How I want to live my life is my choice, not somebody else's choice. And as much as I won't conform to heteronormative standards, I think being Christian has led me to shut my mind to concepts and ideas that may be foreign or opposite to the church's beliefs. It happens to many Christians, actually. They're so obsessed and overprotective of their faith that whenever another alternative point is offered, they get defensive. They'd say, your mind is under attack by the devil. 
And then she says this, losing my Christian beliefs has definitely helped me see more beauty in the world, especially in other religions and other people's faiths. I'm finally leaving Christianity. No, the problem isn't with Christianity. I feel it's more with the so-called followers of Christ, the Christians, their outright hypocrisy that they themselves condone. They say, God has forgiven me and all my sins. Amen. And the hate that they harbor in their hearts toward what their ignorant, brainwashed minds do not understand um, or bother getting to know or empathize. Uh, if this is your cousin, the only thing you can do, Anonymous, is pray for him uh, or for her. Um, so, um, first and foremost, I think I need to say that... Um, She's not leaving Christianity. She never was a believer. She may have been, or he may have been raised. I don't know why I keep thinking this is a girl. It doesn't say that in the in the letter. But uh, it sounds like it was written by a girl. Um, but, but you know, people like this may have been raised in a Christian home. They may have had parents that, that took them to church and tried to give them a solid path to walk. But the truth is, this was a person who never belonged to Christ. And at least she's honest enough in this particular letter to say, uh, here's the real problem. I don't like the idea of people telling me what I should do. That's always been the problem, Anonymous. It's always been the problem. And it doesn't happen just to kids as they grow up. It happens to people all the time. Lots of professing Christians do what they want instead of what God wants. Their lives turn out to be a mess. And they're without help. They're on their own. So that's just the rebellion that's been from the very beginning of time. Now, when she says that it, her, her being gay is her business, God gives her the freedom to do that, to live her life the way that she, she wants to live it. Um, um, but being a Christian never shuts somebody's mind. Jesus said he is the truth. He told Pilate that the only thing that matters is truth. That's when Pilate said, what is truth? And Jesus said, the truth will set you free until this person will open her heart and her mind. And she's actually going to be walking the other direction from truth. So these are things that we need to understand. This is just a human dynamic. God gives us the freedom to rebel, and we do. So pray for your cousin. You be strong in your faith. Don't listen to her attempt at brainwashing you. You dig into your Bible anonymous and figure out ways to respond and ways to pray for her. But don't let her influence your walk. You stay close to Jesus and the likelihood is that this person will be somebody that will come to you when their life is falling apart. And make no mistake, their life is going to fall apart. That's all that rebellion leads to. It, really, it leads to more pain than we can communicate. So I know your heart is broken. Pray for your cousin. And it is my prayer that she won't have to get too desperate before she comes to you. You just be somebody that's there for her. But make sure that when she's talking to you, she knows she's going to hear about Jesus. You know, one of the things that's interesting, and I'm not suggesting this is your situation, Anonymous, but a lot of times, you know, we don't want to talk to people like this because we don't want to feel like we're judging them and we don't want to be accused of judging them. But isn't it interesting how judgmental this girl's email was to you? And about Christians. So they have no problem judging us. So just tell them this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And in your heart, you know it's wrong. And then let her know that when she's ready to get right with Jesus, you'll always be there for her. And in the meantime, you'll be praying for her. There's not much else that we can do in situations like that. Heartbreaking. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Alan. You have recommended the NIV as a solid translation, but I cannot remember which version you recommend. Can you help me? Uh, Alan, I can. It's a 1984 version. It's getting hard to, to, to buy. Um, you can go online and still find it. Just make sure that you get the 1984 
version um, that was produced. The 2011 version has more problems in it than I can even take the time here to talk about. Um, the, the old uh, TNIV, today's NIV, that was sort of between the two, uh, that didn't last even a full year. There was such an outcry against it that that uh, they, they stopped selling it, stopped publishing it. But the 1984 uh, publication of the NIV was a very, very good, reliable, and by the way, by far the most popular translation ever sold. By far. And um, um, you can't go wrong. So, Alan, that's it. Um, so find the 1984 NIV, and you're going to be in good shape. Now, if you have a hard time finding it, you want something in the interim, um, Paul and I have been reading the the, uh, the Living Bible, or the New Living Translation. I'm sorry, not the Living Bible, the New Living Translation, the NLT. Um, and at least so far in the New Testament, I like it. I don't find any problems with it. Uh, it is, as the NIV is, a thought for thought or a phrase for phrase uh, translation, and it reads e- much more easily than the King James and the New King James or the NASB. Um, um, so uh, those are the suggestions that I would provide for you. Here's a question from William. Can I hear your view on Lordship Salvation? William, you've been reading John MacArthur. <laughs> John MacArthur, um, uh, by the way, this is one of his books that, that I would have very little problem with. Uh, basically what John MacArthur is saying in his, uh, the, this is called The Gospel According to Jesus, the name of his book. But he's the one who ignited this whole controversy. It seems that MacArthur responds to uh, positions that, that are popular, but he he believes are aberrant. And this book was a response to uh, an Armenian view of of um, the Word of God, those who are who are praying uh, or, or or teaching ultra grace, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, God forgives you, His grace covers all your sins. Uh, and his uh, book was a response to that, and basically he said, if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, if He's not in charge, then you're not even saved. Now, if you listen to John MacArthur, William, he believes probably that a very small percentage of people sitting in Christian churches are really saved at all. That they're going just through the religious motions and then they do what they want to do Monday through Friday, uh, or, you know, the, the rest of the week. And and um, um, and he says, how, how can we even let those people pretend that they're saved? He has a problem with altar calls. And, you know, people come in, you say a prayer over them, and they, they have this false sense of eternal security. But none of that's our business. So does Jesus need to be your Lord to be saved? Yes. But that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But here's the thing, William, that I think is the most important thing for us to focus on. We need to want to be perfect. The fact that we can't be perfect shouldn't keep us from trying. Paul says that we're to aim for perfection. Jesus said basically the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. We're to always draw near to him and be more and more like him every day. And when we fall, we should hate the fact that we fell. We should confess those sins, repent, and and Jesus will take us in his hand and, and, and we'll keep growing. So Lordship Salvation, the way John MacArthur mended, I think is an extreme, unbalanced view. But remember, you've got to call on the name of the Lord. You've got to believe in your heart. Confess it with your lips. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And you're saved. And that simply means that you submit your will to His will. And the more we grow in our faith, the more of us, the old us, dies. And the more Christ is glorified. So he has to be Lord. You can't be saved by intellectual sin. You can't be saved by an experience. You can't be saved by a religious ritual like baptism. So many of us, we do those things and think, well, now God must be happy with me. And then we live our lives the way we want to live them. We can't do that. Jesus is the Lord of all. Paula used to say, you're the boss of me. Well, that's what she means as it relates to Jesus. It's what calling him Lord means. Jesus said on the day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord. 
And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. But wait a minute, didn't we speak in tongues? And didn't we cast out demons? And didn't we, and there's a list of things that we do. And Jesus will say, simply depart, for I never knew you. And William, the only way, the only way that we can depend on Jesus is to make sure that we put him in charge. So I hope that answers your question. We would love your calls starting a little earlier today. The phone's been quiet so far this week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Viv. She says, if someone divorces without biblical grounds, do they have to remain single forever? Well, Viv, if somebody is a Christian and they leave their husband or their wife and they don't have biblical grounds, Paul then says they must remain unmarried. Now, that's pretty harsh. But the whole idea that Paul was trying to communicate was to to help us understand the value to God of marriage and the value of keeping our promises to God. Now, here's the problem with that. The person that would divorce without biblical grounds is also the person that will remarry without biblical grounds. And there's not much we can do about that. You know, we can't force people to do things. Uh, I wouldn't want to perform a marriage ceremony for somebody who divorced without biblical grounds. Um, There would be no reason for me to think that they wouldn't do it again. And in the process, we Christians make a mockery of of the institution of, of marriage. I wish, I wish just once, that we could count on people coming in saying, you know, Pastor Ron, let's see what God says to do in our situation, and we find out what God says, and they say, okay, we're going to do it. But when we get in these situations with marriage counseling or when we get into situations where people are in crisis, they didn't get there because they were being obedient. They got there because they were being disobedient. And here's what I can tell you for sure, Viv, that if I were asked to remarry somebody who once divorced without biblical grounds, I would have to be able to see that there is genuine repentance. The blood of Christ covers our sins. The blood of Christ restores and refreshes and renews. And if they were genuinely repentant, and if they understood what they did wrong, if they confessed it, if God's forgiven them, then I would too. It's not a matter of forgiveness for me. It's just a matter of some people can't be alone. But yeah, in theory, if somebody divorces without biblical grounds, Paul says he must remain or she must remain unmarried. And it's sort of the advice you give to somebody on the front end of a of a potential divorce. You say, are you willing to pay this price? Now, I've actually had people say to me, yes, I am. I don't care about ever being married again. Well, if that's what they're going to do and they're going to sin against God by divorcing... There's nothing that we can do to stop them. And Jesus said it's because of the hardness of men's, and I would add women's hearts, that we do those things. But Viv, if we're all honest with ourselves in the Christian church, in the Christian community, we have long ago stopped listening to God when it comes to these kinds of issues. We want to be happy. We want to feel good, or at least feel better, more than we want to be obedient. And that's the reason there's so many Christian lives that are in such turmoil all the time. Truth is, if Paul were writing a letter to the San Antonians, I think it would look a whole bunch like 1 Corinthians. There are divisions, there are quarrelings, there's gossip and backbiting, there's people professing a relationship with Jesus Christ, having sex with people they're not married to, some of them living with people they're not married to. I mean, you talk about willful, intentional sin. And in the church, too often, people simply turn a blind eye to it, like it's, well, it's none of their business, but it is. 
the church's business. We're all a part of one another. And the email that Anonymous sent me about her cousin, maybe her cousin wouldn't say those things about Christians if Christians had been consistent all along in her life. Unfortunately, we do what we want to do very often with no regard at all for what God wants us to do. And then we have the temerity at times to get angry at God because we're not happy, because it doesn't work out. And these are really, really hard things. So Viv, that's the best answer I can give. Mike wants to know, we got one minute left in this half of the program. Mike wants to know, what did Jesus mean when he said, if you have ears to hear, use them? That's what he meant. He said, you've got ears, so use them. That's a literal translation. You, you've got a, a mouth, use it for God's glory. You've got ears, hear the word of God, hear the message of God. And unfortunately, Mike, they wouldn't hear. I mean, they heard in a physical sense, but they didn't let what they heard get to their hearts. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program i know he just gave you the phone number but let me do it one more time Mary code 210-340-9585 here is a question from Dwayne. He said, do you know which gospel was written first? Uh, Dwayne, no, nobody knows for sure. Um, personally, I think probably it was Mark, and my reasoning behind that uh, is that, that uh, Mark is Peter's account of the ministry of Jesus. It tells us a lot, by the way, about Peter's personality. He was very direct, very straightforward and to the point. Um, but we really don't know which. You can find um, scholars on on Mark's side or Matthew's side, uh, we're sure that it wasn't Luke, of course, and we're sure it wasn't John, so it would have been either Matthew or Mark, and I think it was probably Mark, uh, and Mark would be uh, the one that uh, that was used a great deal by Luke, uh, and of course, Matthew as well, the Synoptic Gospels is what they're called. John was much, much later, uh, decades later, and... Um, Oh, had a completely different emphasis. So, Dwayne, it was, uh, at least in my opinion, it was Mark, but there is no way to validate that. I'd be curious if you'd uh, send another email um, what, why you asked what, what you're curious about. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, from a mobile app from Leanne. She said, could you be more specific? Uh, this is a follow-up to the question about remarriage without biblical grounds. Could you be more specific? My ex left me without biblical grounds. Does it mean that I cannot marry again? Leanne, thank you so much for asking the question. Give me a chance to make sure that I'm understood. No, it does not mean that you cannot at all. The victims of other people's sin um, never are disciplined by God. They're never punished by God. There's no recriminations whatsoever. So um, uh, when the unbeliever leaves, let him leave, we're told in, in, uh, in Paul's letter. So when the unbeliever leaves and when, when you know, somebody who's a professing Christian leaves and they have no grounds to do so, um, it's one of those things that, that you, you really wonder about their salvation. It's not judging their heart, but here's my rule of life, Leanne. When somebody's acting like an unbeliever, I always treat them like an unbeliever. And if they protest, well, I'm a Christian, then I say, well, what, what makes you think so? If you're really a believer, does that not mean you have to agree with Jesus? And if you're right now willfully disagreeing with Jesus and going to sin, your, your activity is going to be sin. Well, what makes you think you're saved? And so, no, Leanne, as the victim of somebody else, 
You are free to remarry. You are free to enjoy um, whatever it is that God has for you. And um, believe me, there's there's nothing held to your account uh, at all. So I hope that makes it really, really clear. Here is a question from Mitchell. He says, how did the Old Testament law lead to salvation before Jesus? Well, Mitchell, it didn't really. The law didn't ever produce salvation. The law produced condemnation. Uh, the, the way that people in the Old Testament got saved uh, before Jesus, of course, ever appeared was by believing the Word of God. They believed in the Christ to come. They believed in the promises of God. Abraham believed God, we're told in Genesis 12, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So just like our faith is credited to us as righteousness, so too was Abraham's. Um, Moses was saved. Um, the man that got the law, uh, the, the man who was punished by God for misrepresenting him. But, but Moses knew God and believed God. And that's the same way for David, the same way for the patriarchs. Just when we believe, we're justified just as if we'd never sinned by faith. And that means that we can believe and God then grants us grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are saved by grace through faith. That is the only means of salvation. And because the Old Testament saints had no idea of Grace, no concept of grace. They were justified by believing the Word of God. Mitchell, a great study for you. If you go individually, example by example through Hebrews 11, it's one of the great, great Bible studies to understand what Christ has done for us uh, in, in all of our Bibles. I mean, when you look at the people, Noah is one of my favorites. Noah believed God, and he proved he believed God by building for 120 years an ark. I always like to say Noah built with one hand and preached with the other hand. He was always busy. Why? Because he believed God. Uh, Enoch believed God. And Enoch was no more. Enoch was taken away to be with God. And and, and case by case, go into the Old Testament and look at the, the, the saints and, and what they did. It proved they believed. And that's how they were saved. So, Mitchell, thank you for the question. I hope that helps. Let's go to Roland calling from San Marcos. Roland, you called earlier today. Thanks for calling. Yes, sir. I called, I believe, yesterday. Today, I yeah. just want to thank you. I want to thank the praise the Lord. Uh, I called last week about my kidney transplant. Uh-huh. And I took, uh, I went for the blood work and everything, and my doctor called me yesterday afternoon telling me that it's normal. Oh, praise the Lord, Roland. Amen. Praise amen. Lord. We we have been praying earnestly for you, and I know some of the listeners because they've contacted me. They've been praying earnestly for you, and you got prayed for uh, by Paula at our Saturday morning corporate prayer uh, here last week. So we've been praying. Thank you for the praise report. Oh, hallelujah! Thank you, sir. <laughs> God bless Bye-bye. you, man. That's great. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Now, see, God hears prayers and answers. And people say, well, he didn't answer my prayers. Well, keep asking. Don't get tired of asking. Keep asking. Roland, the reason I said he called uh, earlier today, he called yesterday with one minute left in the program, so we didn't get an opportunity to, to share with that yesterday because we were getting cut off. But, Roland, God bless you. Thank you. We'll continue praying for you. Keep us informed what's going on. Here's a question from Jan. She says, when Jesus told his disciples to get a sword, does that mean that it is okay to, to defend our own lives or our families? Uh, Jan, a couple of things. One, the two things have nothing to do with one another. So let me say first and foremost, it is okay to defend your life or your family's lives. In fact, it's your duty to do so. We're built with an instinct to live, to survive, so of course it's okay to defend our lives or or the lives of the people that we love. Uh, Again, it is our duty to do so. So that's clear um, and always has been. Now, with regard to Jesus telling the disciples to get a sword, that has nothing to do with self-defense. What Jesus was doing in that passage of Scripture 
He was letting him know that, you know, I've been with you all this time. Uh, nothing has hurt you. Uh, I've been protecting you, um, but I'm going away. And so now when I go, it's going to get really hard. So be ready to fight. That's what Jesus was trying to tell him. He wasn't telling him to get a sword. Now we remember that Peter took him very literally. Peter, if you ask Peter, do you believe the word of God literally? Yes, I got a sword. I cut off Malchus's ear. But that's not what he meant. Peter, 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 put your sword away. Jesus picked up Malchus's ear and put it back on. But what Jesus was telling him is simply that I'm going to go away and then you're going to be set in opposition to this world and the world is going to try to kill you and they're going to put you in prison and they're going to try to destroy you. All those things happen. And Jesus was just simply saying that you need to be ready until now, I've been protecting you, but when I'm gone, get ready to fight. And Jim, that's a gr- great word for all of us. We need to expect battles. We need to expect opposition. I think sometimes we American Christians are so soft that we cry the persecution card so easily. Instead of just saying, you know, Jesus, you told me it was going to be tough. In this world, you will have tribulation, he said. He said, people hated me, they're going to hate you. They insulted me, they're going to insult you. And for some reason in the West, we forget all about those things. You know, nobody on their refrigerator has a magnet that says that in this world, you're going to have great tribulation. That's not in anybody's refrigerator. Nobody buys a plaque and says, they insulted me, they're going to insult you, they hate me, they're going to hate you. But we need to expect opposition. And if we're fruitful in our ministry for the Lord, then we need to expect opposition from the enemy himself. So we need to get tougher. A little thicker skin, maybe a little thinner hearts. And we need to be ready to fight. I tell my church here all the time, Jen, that the real key is embracing the battles. Now, nobody likes them. So don't misunderstand them. I'm saying enjoy the battle. The battles are tough. But embracing them, because at the end of every battle is somebody who stands tougher and more and more like Jesus. So that's all he was saying. But but again, I want to make it sure you understand, it is our responsibility to defend our lives and our families' lives. Um, we can do that anytime. Here is a question from Matthew. Oops. Let let me get this question from Matthew. Why is there so much disagreement about the rapture? When do you think it will happen? I was listening to Hank Hanegraaff, and he said there's no such thing as the rapture. Matthew, Hank has changed his position on the rapture of the church over the 27 years that I've been listening to him to the point where he no longer makes any sense at all. So I'm not going to address it other than than uh, his conversion to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, while I'm not doubting his salvation was based on uh, anything except solid scholarship. So why is there so much disagreement about the rapture? I think we disagree because we, we, we like to argue, we like to debate. Um, the, 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 the timing of the rapture of the church can only be determined by the character and the nature of God. And if the Great Tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, then it is impossible for God to pour out His wrath on Christians, meaning it's impossible for Christians to be here during that time when He is judging the world. Why? Because we've already been judged in the person of Christ. Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the wrath of God in our place. A holy, just God could never, by definition, He could never punish those who are without sin and in the eyes of God we are all without sin so the timing of the rapture has to be before the great tribulation and why people argue is beyond me Matthew they want to you know there's always people our pride is such that we're always looking to be a little smarter than the next person sometimes we outsmart ourselves so it's just real simple um for those who believe there is no such thing as rapture and 
those who are amillennial in their eschatology, um, they have to throw out big chunks of the Bible to do so and uh, allegorize bigger chunks. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that what Jesus says, he says pretty clearly. And there is going to be a rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There is a rapture of the church, and we're going to be taken away to be with Jesus for, on earth, a seven-year period of time. Uh, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be where Jesus is. We're going to be in his presence while he is letting the world destroy itself, and then we're going to come back with him at the end of that seven years. And Jesus is going to reestablish his kingdom. So, Matthew, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from our email inbox from Drew. Drew, it's good to hear from you. I heard from you for a while. Pastor Ron, I know you don't particularly care for questions on the Roman Catholic Church, but with the recent allegations that Pope Francis himself helped cover up the sexual abuse and misconduct of uh, Cardinal McCarrick, I'm at a loss of words to explain how the masses continue to believe in these guys who wear robes and lead the flock in the so-called mass. These stories continue to reveal the incessant, rampant cover-up that's been going on for decades and maybe centuries. I wonder how much longer will the Roman Catholic Church be able to keep their finger in the dam before it breaks? Will people's eyes finally be opened? Could I have your thoughts? Grace and peace, Drew. Um, Drew, I get lots of Catholic questions in spite of the fact that I don't really care for the questions about them. Um, but, But the truth of the matter is unsaved people do unsaved things. It is an amazing thing. We're watching this unraveling. Um, and, and to be fair, um, there are many professing Christian, even evangelical churches that are busy covering up sin in their own ranks, uh, busy trying to quiet um, the flow of information so that other people don't find out. And, you know, in this information age, everything comes out. You can tell people don't talk about things all you want, but you can't keep people from talking. And now, since information flows so quickly, there's just no hope of discovering it. Uh, I was just asked a question before we went on air uh, what I thought about uh, the, the Pope's position now because he's taking so much abuse. He's, his, his resignation's been demanded. Um, based on what has been revealed about this man's character, and I, I mean this in a, in a good sense, not in a, in a pejorative sense, um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, and this is what I said before we ever saw your question, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he resigned. Um, you know, when he said last week, shame, shame, shame on us, uh, at some point at the top, you've got to say shame on me. You know, I think of Daniel, I think of Isaiah, the, arguably the two most righteous men in all of Scripture, when they were praying in repentance um, um, for the failures of Israel. They didn't say, those people sinned. No, we have sinned and fallen short, O oh God. We are guilty. We have blood on our hands. Well, I think that's what the Catholic Church needs to do. Now, your your, your last question is the one that is really interesting to me. You wonder how much longer the Roman Catholic Church will be able to keep their finger in the dam before it breaks. Will the people's eyes finally be open? The answer is religion has always kept people's eyes, hearts, and minds closed. You know, if we can sin and we can go have somebody pronounce a mass, a Eucharist over us, if we can go and take the bread or the cup or go to a confessional and the penance is saying Hail Marys or whatever it is that they ask you to do. There's no cost to sin. And so we can sin today, go confess tonight, go sin again tomorrow, go confess tomorrow. We can do it over and over and over. And that's a trampling on grace. And the problem, Drew, is that Catholics, and I'm, I'm speaking very generally now, uh, before I even say this, I want this audience to hear me very clearly. There are some Catholics who are born again, but it is a very, very small number, a very, very small remnant. 
And because they're not born again, they're not regenerated. And that means they are controlled by the old nature. It doesn't matter what kind of robe they wear. It doesn't matter what kind of religious rituals they engage in. An unregenerate heart, whether you call him father or pastor, an unregenerate heart is going to sin. Let me also take a minute, Drew. You didn't ask this question. But let me say this. Um, you know, staunch Catholics sort of come to their defense and they're taking issue with Catholic doctrine, but the idea of, of the priesthood requiring celibacy. And I've had questions that were sent to me and I've seen letters to the editor that suggest that, well, that's the problem. If these priests weren't required to be celibate, then they wouldn't commit these sins against boys. That's not true. Celibacy and pedophilia have nothing at all in common. These are horrible, cruel, inexcusable acts. And pedophiles don't change apart from the hand of God. And even then, the rest of the church has to protect not only their victims, but them against other temptation. We have had some convicted pedophiles from time to time in our church. A couple of cases before they went to jail. They're still there, by the way. And we let them know that eyes will be on every move they make here. They're never to be around children. They're always to be here with somebody attached to their shoulder. We're gonna, there's, there's a price to pay for that kind of sin. And we have grown so soft on sin that we're exposing people in our churches to, to terrible, terrible problems. Celibacy is not the issue. Paul was celibate. He didn't molest children. Pedophiles molest children. And our job is to protect them. So I don't know what the Pope is going to do, Drew. Um, uh, I, as I said, I wouldn't be surprised if he resigned. Um, but these stories aren't going away, and I, I really feel like this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg uh, in the process. Let's go to line one, San Jose. Or I'm sorry, Jose from San Antonio. Not San Jose. Jose from San Antonio. Thanks for calling, Jose. You're on the air. Yes, sir, Pastor Ron. Uh, I'm top sinner. Uh, I had a question for you uh, on Acts 9 through, like, 7 or 9. Why did Paul couldn't sleep for three days and three nights? Well, that was Saul at, at then. That's, um, say, say one Jose, say it one more time. Why did Paul what? what, what well, at that time, his name was Saul. But what, Saul. how come he couldn't mm-hmm. sleep for three days and three nights? Um, he, was blind, uh, he was blinded. Yes, he was blinded. And the reason, the reason was because of the glory of God. Um, this was part of Jesus' plan. When Jesus apprehended him on the road to Damascus, uh, and that glory was poured out. Um, a voice was heard. Now, the people with him heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul did. And the glory of God caused him to be blind. And God used that three-day period of time, keeping Paul blind. I mean, Jesus could have, have, have cured him of his blindness right away. But it was a, a, a three-day period of time, Jose, where Paul had to dig really deep into his own heart. He had to examine everything that he'd believed. You remember when Jesus looked at him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and he didn't go into a long, detailed explanation. He only said, who are you, Lord? And he knew he came face to face with God. But at the same time, it wasn't his concept of God. And so that three days worth of blindness, Jose, was used by the Lord to open his eyes spiritually. Now, when Ananias came and laid hands on him and the scales fell off his eyes and he could see again, um, that was great. But before Ananias ever showed up, Saul then could see spiritually for the very first time. 
And people talk about that three-day period of time where he was, uh, it was so hard for him and he was in pain and he was so afraid. And some of that may have been true, but, but I personally believe that was the best three days that he ever spent. Three days repenting, three days genuinely seeing that the one that he had been persecuting was the, 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 the object of his faith. Three days of seeing how in his zeal he could be so wrong. And uh, in this particular case, it was a three-day period of time, Jose, that God used uh, to change the life of the man that changed my life and changed your life and changed the history of the world that we live in. So the glory of God would blind you and me if we saw it as well. So thank you, Jose. Appreciate it. Got time maybe for one more question. Uh, Mary wants to know, what did it mean that Enoch walked with God? Um, well, we know he didn't walk with God physically because nobody can see God and live. But what it meant is that Enoch was in a world completely given over to evil. God gave Enoch a message. It will come when he is born. And that was a message that his son, Methuselah, uh, would be um, God's word. And Enoch believed God's word. And after walking with God, or, I'm sorry, walking in this world for 300 years just like everybody else. He believed God's message, repented, and for 65 years walked with God. Not with people on this earth. He walked with God. That means every day he would get up and his whole focus would be being with God. We'd say being with Jesus. Every day he'd want only to be in the presence of the Lord. And one day it was so sweet that God decided, you know, Enoch, enough of you in this world. You've been all alone. It's just me, so you come to be with me now. Wow, what a great, great time. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for the calls. Roland, we are rejoicing with you, so thank you for letting us know. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. The Date Day Show with Paula will be tomorrow, ladies. We hope to hear from you. We'll see you tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.